If you don't know me, my name's Scott, and we uh, do extend a really warm welcome to you. It is very warm today, but beyond just the physical heat, a really warm welcome to you, and it's great to have you all here worshipping with us. Um, at the start of Advent, yes, it is December 1st, people. Woohoo! Oh, come on. It's December 1st. <laughs> I know, I understand, it's been a busy time for many of us, and, uh, and we come to a time now where we begin to shift our focus to the season of Advent, or the, the coming of Jesus into the world. And we're going to start a, a, a little mini-series as such as leading into Christmas uh, with multiple people coming up and preaching. And again, we're just really thankful to the Lord for the gifts that he's placed on his body here at Pine Rivers Vineyard. We are a very diverse people and we celebrate that because that's who God's called us to be. So we're actually being faithful to what he's called us to be. And in the midst of that, he's also given some great gifts amongst all of us. Everybody has them. But in particular, I'm thankful this morning for the preaching and teaching gift that we have so many people that are, um, are anointed with, and so we get to all benefit from that, which is fantastic, really fantastic. So we begin to, um, what I believe personally, this wondrous, amazing and mind-blowing event that we celebrate on December 25th, and that is the birth of Jesus. It is astonishing if we take the time to stop and to reflect on what that actually means, that the God-man, Jesus, both fully God and fully man, came to earth to live amongst, amongst us. I think the season itself can get us a little caught up and we get that a little bit lost, but let's not forget this season that that's the core message of what we're talking about. God becoming man, living life amongst us, and eventually dying on the cross and rising again. And uh, in the midst of that, you can kind of get it as I say it, there's a big story that's going on for God as he relates to humanity. And we have had that, a bit of a, a focus in and around that as we've looked at 1 Corinthians 1 over the last few weeks. There's been this continual, amongst the, the individual words and the, and the intimacy and the connection with God, there's this been this great sense of, of in being invited into more and more this knowledge and this idea of the big story of God that is going on in and around us. And it's been a wonderful journey and it's come flooding through worship. I don't know if you felt that at all or maybe um, paid attention to what's going on in worship because it, there is that. There's this great sense of the, the wonder and the awe and the bigness of the goodness and the faithfulness. We actually sung that song, um, All My Life You've Been Faithful, All My Life You've Been So, So Good that has been coming through in worship as well. And as we've done that, the presence of God has just like just hit the room in different ways for different people. So this morning, I want to um, spend a bit of time focusing on this big story of God, but using one of the key words that comes up at, the Christmas, at Christmas time, and that is hope. Use the word hope to look at the big story that's going on with God. And... Um, you know, I think we can have a tendency, I don't know about, I'm, I'm going to put myself in this boat, I'm not going to project it onto you, you can tell me whether it's just me and I'm weird, 
Or you can tell me I'm weird and you also agree with what I'm, I'm saying as well. That, that's okay. I can live with that. I'm a little more thick-skinned these days. But, uh, you know, um, I find sometimes that some of the Christmas words or messages are kind of things that we, we deal with when the Christmas season comes up and we, we sometimes cope with them and we can't wait for December 26th so we can kind of move on and move forward because they make us feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because our circumstances, our present circumstances and what those words like hope, joy, peace and love actually mean can seem quite foreign or distant from us. And so we can really at times kind of just grin and bear the Christmas season and hope you know, in our own strength, that we survive it and, uh, and then we move on and forward. But in the biblical sense, when we're talking about hope, uh, by the way, am I alone in that or have others had seasons where they've really felt that as well? Certain words, hope, peace, how do we have peace in this time? Is it just me or have others been like, well, that's, this is all a real battle and it's making me feel awkward when we have such a focus on that? Am I the only one? No, others, no good. All right, others are with me in this story. This is good. Then we, we might get somewhere today. This is great. Um, biblically, though, the word hope or the, life, the, the activity of hope in our life is actually not just something that's centered around one season like we would do particularly with Christmas. Biblical hope is very, very different to what we might talk about when we think about it as a human feeling or a sense of optimism, where we might look at a circumstance and we might have a certain optimism that that can change. And we try and we hope, we have that sense of hope that it actually might turn out for the best. It's a sense that we don't know necessarily but it might, and we might be able to orchestrate some of those things, but we live in hope that it actually might change without really knowing if it will or not, a sense of optimism. But the word hope in the Bible actually has a very different meaning. There's two words in particular in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and I'm really, really sorry to any Hebrew scholars out there for my pronunciations that are about to come out. But we'll see how we go with that. One word is <laughs> having had the man flu, it's not a bad thing to try and pronounce these things this way at the moment. Yachal, which in essence means to wait. That hope is about waiting. And the other one is kavar. Now kavar is a really, really interesting word because its root cause is found in, in the sense of tension. There's a tension that's actually going on. But when you extend it out to kavar, there's a sense of tension and expectation that something is going to change. So hope in that sense is, and in the Old Testament sense, is that we're often waiting, but we're also waiting in the tension of expectation. And, and this is really, really important when we talk about the word hope, particularly as we talk about Israel. Because for Israel, when they talk about Yachal and Kavar, I'm doing pretty good with the little roll there. I'm not doing too bad at all. I'm really proud of myself on that one. Um, that 
<laughs> and then it does that to me when I try and speak like a, uh, in Hebrew. Um, but the, the, the biblical hope is extremely different to that sense of optimism that we might talk about in our worldly sense because the Yachal and Kavar are actually centered on God, on a person. So they're not, the hope is not on a, a sense of optimism or looking at a circumstance and actually hoping it might change. Actually, biblical hope lives in the tension of the actual circumstance that exists, that the person of God would come in and be the one that would restore, save, whatever that might be in the, in the, um, in the sense of what's going on in the Bible at that time. So it's very much as we think about this Christmas season and we hear the word hope and others might ask us, what is our hope? It, it, we must be very, we really need to ensure that when we describe it, we are doing it from the sense that it's in the person of Jesus Christ that our hope actually exists. But we'll get onto that a little more in just a minute. Um, there are, in the Bible... There are um, a few different um, stories that go on. And in this relationship that God has in the Old Testament, in the Kavar and the, and the Yachal that's going on for Israel as they wait on God and his promises, there are a few central stories that happen throughout the Bible that talk about where this hope of Israel comes from that eventually leads to the birth of Jesus. Now remember today, we're talking about being invited into the big story of God. All right, your individual journey is so important, an individual relationship with God, but it's not that your relationship is the center. You are actually, as Kirk has talked and preached about, we are invited into the big story of God. Our journey is now his journey, his story in that big story. So we're, we're wanting to focus on why is this word hope so important for in the big story that it means so much for us today. Cool? We all there? So we want to go back and I have some very cool friends, they're very cool, who are going to help me this morning to talk about um, a few little passages that become really important as we talk about hope. Because I'm going to find where my, the order of my little friends and how they're coming up. Um, because Israel's hope is centered around these four big events for what's going to happen in their life and how they relate to God. And they're vitally important to the lead up of Jesus coming and what Jesus did and what Jesus said. So let's take a few minutes. I'm going to invite my first friend up. Now, when we are talking about these four events, what we're actually speaking about this morning is the word covenant, okay? Now, the word covenant in the Old Testament, do you want to, are you going to tell us, little friend, what covenant means, or do you want me to do that? I could do that. <laughs> um, the word covenant, it's a word that we don't use as much, but effectively in the Old Testament, it was not just in terms of how Israel related to God. Covenants were very, very common in and throughout the Old Testament. Essentially, they, are, they were an agreement by two parties of how you're going to do life together. 
And I say life together because the covenant could be for different reasons and for different things. It could come after a military battle or to prevent a military battle. One country knows they're going to get absolutely wiped out. So rather than going into battle and getting wiped out, they go into a covenant relationship with the conqueror as such. And then there's this agreement. If you do this, then we'll do this. And all that kind of stuff happens between them. Usually in the covenant, there was some stuff that would tell you, if you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen. Now, outside of of God, in terms of just kingdom to kingdom, that usually meant you're going to be wiped out if you don't keep these rules and commitments that we're committing to today. But God, in his grace, comes to Israel and he, and he involves and he invites them into these covenant relationships, something that they're used to, something that they understand as they've seen the nations around them. So covenant number one. Who, who, let me ask you a few questions. Let me see if we can get this microphone working for you. It's on? It's on. It's on. No, I didn't turn, I didn't turn it off. Is it, it's not on. I didn't turn it off. The little screen wasn't on at all. Is, okay. While you're sorting this out, I'll ask, who are you, Little Covenant? <laughs> little Covenant. I am Covenant number one, so the Noahic Covenant, or the Noahic. I don't really know how to pronounce that. Noahic, I'm going to go with. Covenant. What was the, Close enough? Did someone, <laughs> where do we find you in the Bible? I am in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 to 17, precisely. Precisely, yes. And we talked about that covenant being a relationship. So what, what happened with you between God and man? What happened? So this covenant comes into play just after God has flooded the earth. And basically the covenant is that he would never destroy the earth by flood. And it's a covenant to Noah, his descendants, and then all living creatures. So it extends to the whole of creation, basically. Very cool. And do we have any, um, any kind of signs of that covenant today? Do, do we? Yeah. <laughs> we do. It's, um, we have our rainbow. And this is a reminder to us of the faithfulness of God and um, of his promise to us never to flood the earth and also of God's hatred of sin being the reason that he you know, originally flooded the earth. Um, and it's also a reminder that as you know, God had the ark to save Noah, then he then gave us Jesus to save us. Um, yeah, so that's the rainbow. It's pretty cool. And this, I'm interested to see how you answer this question, actually. <laughs> how, how did we go? How, what's ended up with that covenant? What's happened? So that's quite interesting. This covenant was an um, unconditional covenant. So it wasn't really on anything Noah or his descendants would do. It was on, you know, solely on the faithfulness of God and that he... It was his promise to us that he wouldn't destroy the earth by flood again, no matter how you know wicked the earth got. Um, and seeing as there hasn't been another flood, I'd say he's been pretty faithful on that. So, yeah. Thank you. That's awesome. Let's give a clap for our first covenant. <laughs> this one does not like us. We'll put that down and leave that alone. We'll wing it. All right, so there's our first event, our first covenant that happens between God and man um, around what his promise was and what he wouldn't do. Now, hold on to that. Again, big story. Hold on to that one. Where's my second covenant? Come on up. 
Welcome our second couple. Come on. All right. So, who are you? I am covenant number two. I am the Abrahamic covenant. The Abraham. I love how you're all adding hick in there to <laughs> the end of it. So, um, where do we find you in the Bible? So this is also found in Genesis. It's a little bit later on. It's reiterated multiple times. So it's in chapters 12, 15, and 17. Cool. I hope everybody's taking notes because these are pretty cool covenants and we're giving you like this really cool summary that if you go to Bible college, it takes you like a semester or a year to get through. So um, take notes really fast. Go for it. It helps you out. Um, and what is your covenant between God and man? So this covenant is especially between God and a man called Abraham, or Abram initially, uh, and God reiterates it in a number of forms, but essentially he says to Abraham, Abraham, sorry, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and through your descendants, essentially, I will restore mankind. And he says, you know, Abraham, look up at the stars, um, they're uncountable, and that's how many your descendants will be. And he also says that his descendants will have the promised land, which will become Israel. And so how did that covenant go? How did it end up in your covenant? Well, unfortunately, Abraham's family were rather dysfunctional. Um, but, but fortunately, God is not dysfunctional. <laughs> and so initially, uh, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, or Sarai initially, um, they, were, they hadn't had any children. Um, she appeared to be barren. He actually gave her almost away to, as a wife when he went into Egypt. He said, you know, I'll be your brother. That way they won't kill me because you're so beautiful. Um, and that sort of continued. And then when Sarah could bear Abraham no children, he was like, or Sarah was like, take my servant, uh, Hagar. And that didn't really end well either because then Ishmael was born and God was like, well, I will bless him, but he's not the line that this is all going to occur through. And then eventually when Abraham was about 100 years old and he'd, he'd pretty much given up, but God was like, no, I've made this promise with you, this covenant, I will fulfill it. Sarah will bear you a child. And then we get Isaac. And then in the continuation of that story of, of like the nation of Israel will come out of those descendants. Um, Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, that was kind of dysfunctional too because Jacob stole the birthright, birthright off Israel, um, off Esau, sorry. And then Jacob's children were the 12 sons and Joseph was the favorite. He got sold into slavery in Egypt, but then God was like, well, I'm going to use your evil act and I'm going to make it into good. And all his brothers start starving and they come back, but Joseph is now conveniently almost head of Egypt and saves them all. So God turned all of their horrible, horrible acts into really, really brilliant things to continue fulfilling his promise, even though they completely stuffed it up. <laughs> yeah, round of applause. Like I said... Old Testament Overview 101 in, in like 10 minutes. So you, you write your notes, write your notes. Thank you, Covenant Number 2. You've done very, very well. Wow, that was a good summary. Um, hope you're starting to pick up a bit of a theme here around these covenants. Uh, covenant Number 3, where are you? Come on up. Here he comes. Come on, Covenant Number 3. All right. Ready? Yeah. All right. Who are you? Um, covenant number three, uh, <laughs> or better known as uh, the Mosaic Covenant. Um, you can find me in the second half of the Exodus story uh, in the Old Testament. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, oh, okay, yeah. The covenant itself was that God would be in contact and in, in the presence with his people 
um, which would fulfill the Abrahamic um, covenant that he um, previously was talking about. Uh, yeah. Cool. And so, uh, can I just elaborate covenant number three a little bit more? Yeah, cool. So, this is integral to Israel's identity. They're being called out of Egypt, and they're now at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And at Mount Sinai, God enters into a covenant relationship with them around, I want to be with you, and you, I want you to be with me. And this is core to Israel's identity from then on. This is a substantial passage in the Bible around um, what God is wanting to achieve through Israel and who they are as a people and in his desire to be in relationship with people. We often see the big thunder and the clapping and all those kind of things and we can get a little lost in, in the sense of, of the, the bigness of God and that, that is right and true because that's who he is. But in the midst of that and through that we see this beautiful beautiful connection that God is trying to make with his people because he wants to dwell with them. How can, how can I as a holy God come and dwell with these people because I want to be in relationship um, with them? So it's a very, very core um, passage. And how did that covenant go? How did the mosaic or the, in the end the Ten Commandments and the couple of, um, couple of books of the Bible after Exodus, how did that all go for Israel and men? Oh, uh, well, it didn't start off great, that's for sure. <laughs> um, to start off, um, the, the Israelites were way too scared to even meet God on the mountain. They're like, hell no, we don't want to go up there. That's as scary as like lightning and thunder and stuff. No. <laughs> so they, um, they sent Moses to go meet with God on the, on the, on the mountain. Um, and there he spent time with God and then he formed the, the Ten Commandments. And um, he also got the blueprints for a tent to be built uh, for which God would come into because God was like, if you won't come to me, then I'll come to you because he wanted to fulfill that covenant that he had made with the people. So he decided, oh, all right, you guys are way too scared, so I'll just come to you. Um, and, of course, Moses probably spent quite a f fair bit of time up on the mountain. Um, so when he came down from the mountain, the Israelites had already broken the covenant with God <laughs> by melting down all their gold and worshipping a calf that came out of it. And to think that after God had just wiped out all of the other other gods that aren't the one true God, that they just go and make their own one straight after that, it's a bit insane to think that they went from, oh, our God is all-powerful to let's worship this calf. like <laughs> And um, this but just to support God's anger and the wanting to strike down his people because of, like, he just, like you'd think, like, oh, my heart is so broken. Um, Moses reminded him of his promise, and uh, God was faithful and good and took it upon himself to fulfill the covenant. And, like, the, the tent was still built. Um, God rested in that presence. But um, even though the covenant was fulfilled, there was still that break between the people of Israel in God and they couldn't enter the tent because there was that divide between them from what they did. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you, covenant number three. Well done.
That's a big one. That takes a big chunk of the Bible. And this is where Israel lives their relationship with God out throughout the Old Testament. And as Tash said, it goes, it does go really pear-shaped. They can never ever fulfill the older commandments. And in fact, they get so scared of the commandments that they build these other set of laws around the commandments as a protective zone so that we don't even get close to the commandments because we don't want to make God angry and don't want to break the covenant. So this is seen right throughout the rest of the Old Testament. All this toing and froing uh, of, of men not being able to meet the Mosaic Covenant and God's faithfulness back to them, despite there being some retribution in it, there's always, always restoration from God. He is good and he is faithful. One more, one more. Covenant number four. Come on up. Welcome our last covenant. They're all very young covenants, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> Welcome come to number four. Who are you? I am the Davidic covenant. I'm the covenant from God to David. Uh, this is the most recent covenant. Uh, took place in Second Samuel chapter seven, uh, and God basically uh, promises to David, the king of Israel, two main things. The first is that He'll make Israel safe because uh, they were constantly getting attacked by the surrounding nations, and so His promise was that. They would be safe from that. There would be peace. The other thing that he promised was that someone in David's lineage would eventually be the one true king and would be a son of God. Uh, that second part we know has definitely been fulfilled uh, because we had Jesus. Jesus was part of the line of David, and that's why the Bible has to be really specific about who begot who just before Jesus comes in. Uh, and you wouldn't, if you were alive at the time, you wouldn't have thought that that was going to be true anymore because Israel didn't really have a proper king uh, around that, the time when Jesus was around. Uh, in terms of Israel being safe, even today Israel is a bit of a mess. There's a lot of random stuff happening, especially in that surrounding area. Uh, there are like uh, lots of contesting powers within Israel. It's pretty messy. So you could say that that part hasn't really been fulfilled yet. But I would say that part of that is because you see throughout after this covenant, uh, Israel continues to sin like crazy and God always punishes them by putting them under the control of this other nation uh, who uh, just completely destroys the Jewish culture and desecrates everything that they hold sacred. That's great. That's really cool. I don't need to ask you any more questions, do I? Because you just covered it all. Right? Yeah, you did. Well done, Covenant number four. <laughs> Let's give it up. <laughs> so there's, there are four key moments throughout the Old Testament of covenant relationship between God and mankind and Israel. They are extremely key when we talk about the sense of hope because after the Davidic covenant, it goes, as Bo said, completely pear-shaped for Israel. The kings can't do what they are meant to do and there is a period of time, some do, and God blesses them when they do and they turn to him and call out to him and he comes and he saves them. But on the whole, they don't. And so we have, as a result of all the broken covenants, from man's perspective, not from God's, we have a time of exile. Israel is taken out of the land, literally, taken out of the promised land. Now, again... Old Testament Theology 101, this is, those four things and the exile, this is massive. 
This is the sense of identity for Israel is centered around a few key things. They, their inheritance from God is the land that they lived in. Not only was it the land that they lived in, but it was also the dwelling place of their God. He now, they now have a temple where his dwelling place is, the Holy of Holies, if you've read that before. His dwelling place on earth, when he comes down to earth, is in that temple, and it is destroyed. Now, if who you are is centered on the relationship with that God and he is present through that temple and that is destroyed and you are ta- literally all the wise people, the smart, the educated people are taken out of the land. That was the way that Babylon and Assyria conquered. They took all the educated people out of the land and they assimilated them into their culture. This also was disastrous for Israel in their identity and who they were because their covenant relationship with God was about living in a certain way under his rule and it was removed from them in Babylon. And that's why like the stories of Daniel and all those guys are so important because it's talking about them living in a way that is under the covenant in a nation that's not living under in a relationship with God. And they're trying in all of those 400 years or more of exile to hold on to their identity so closely. And if you're trying with all you are to hold on to your identity, it's like going to live in another country and you... I was going to say New Zealand, that maybe wouldn't be very fair, but let's just say something, a country that's completely different to ours and trying to hold on to your Aussie way of living. I don't know if you've done that before. I have. America for four years. It's really hard. Like ways of speaking, what you eat... All those things that we think are just normal things are suddenly different. And it's really hard to hold on to that sense of Aussie culture. And you put things in place to try and make sure you can do that. But for Israel, this is their core identity. They were called as a nation because they were in relationship with God. So for 400 years, Israel is in a time of yachal, where they have to wait. They have to hope, but the hope is around, and they have to, is around that sense of waiting, waiting for God to come and restore. And that is over 400 years. And so we see through the prophets of the Old Testament, they are (coughs) consistently using the word hope. Hope, Israel, yes, this has happened, but hope, It's going to come. God will come. He will come and rescue you. And for the sake of time this morning, I won't go too far into that. But you are, you are in a time of waiting, but God will come through. And in particular, um, in particular, we see this through Isaiah. He, he is consistently saying to Israel, hold on, there, there will be a time where a king will be born. And, and we, you know, Isaiah 9, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor and all of those kind of scriptures that are centered around that. A light has dawned in the darkness. All the cries of the prophets to say, it's going to hope, keep hoping, it's going to come. It's God is going to come and he's going to restore Israel. He's going to restore the relationship. And so Israel waits and waits and waits. 400 years older than we are as a nation. Way more older than we are as a nation does Israel, Israel wait. 
And then one day, a rumour begins. There's a child that's been born. He's been born in a miraculous way. In a miraculous way. So much so is it said that this new king has been born, that magi from the east have travelled. All these rumours begin to spread through Israel. Why would they have spread? Because the magi came to the king of Israel and said, where is this new king that we need to worship? Don't think that would have gone quietly into the night. It did not. Herod went out and looked for him, tried to kill him, just like what happened in Exodus. Go look it up in the Gospels. So Israel is now moving into a season of hope that is now caval, expectation, tension. Who is this child? Who could he be? What's he going to do? And throughout the Gospels, we see this great story of Jesus, um, how Israel navigates this great caval, this expectation. Is he? Could he be? Will he? The miracles, look at the miracles he's doing. His words are like nobody we've ever heard before. They're amazing. We, when we hear it, it's like, it's like we come alive in us and then, then everything that looks is wrong, he restores. People are being healed. Diseases are being cured. Demons are fleeing from him at a hundred miles an hour and running out of him. He can actually stand up to the Jewish leaders. He actually teaches them almost, who is this man? And Kavar is happening all across Israel. As you read the Gospels, look for the stories of hope that are consistently in there. This, when Israel are testing, they're like, that's what they're doing. It's the Kavar that's coming out of it. Are you Are you the promised Messiah? Are you going to be the one that's going to restore all things back to God, our relationship back with God? And the reason why I wanted this morning to look at those four covenants, again, the big story of God, in Jesus, all of those covenants are fulfilled. They are fulfilled. It's not... Yeah, they are fulfilled. The... Abraham covenant, sorry, the Noah covenant, or the Nahik, how do you say it? Uh, Nahik. <laughs> in Jesus, when God tried to do a new, he wanted to start over in the, as he flooded the earth. He wanted to, a new creation. In Jesus, a new creation has started, the scriptures tells us. He is the new Adam. New birth, new relationship with God. In the Abraham, Abraham, I can't even talk now. Abraham's covenant, we'll go with that. Now all men, not just one nation, are welcomed into the family of God. God has fulfilled the covenant in Jesus. He said to Abraham, as numerous as the stars shall be your children. And now throughout the ages, Jesus has been welcoming And we are included into the family of God through him. The Mosaic Covenant, one that is centered around God's presence dwelling with Israel. Now this one's huge because you would read a line in in the Gospels that says when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It was torn in two into the place of the Holy of Holies. It was ripped open. Only certain priests at certain times of the year got to go into the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died, that curtain was ripped open. It was God saying, I am well and truly available to 
anybody. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, my presence is available to anyone and everyone. And the Davidic king um, (coughs) covenant, as Bo said, has been fulfilled in Jesus. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His kingdom is established and he will forever reign. Amen, right? Yes? Yes. There are no boundaries to his kingdom and it is forever established to any who would welcome it. He is the king of kings. And it's with all those things in mind that the likes of Peter and Paul, again, remember, we're on the big story and we're going to tie it in a little bit in just a second, wrap it up. The big story of God, and as Peter says so clearly in 1 Peter 1.3, I believe it is, he says, we now have this living hope. We have a living hope in Jesus. So the Yachar and the Kaval is now a living hope in Jesus. We don't hope for that which has not been fulfilled. What is now happening in our lives as we talk about hope in Jesus and as the big story goes on, the big story in the sense of hope in Jesus is that he is now restoring all things and he is transforming us more and more into his likeness. That is now our living hope. The covenants have been solved. Those problems are done. They're finished in Jesus, right? So now we are in this living hope, not that things might change, not optimism, because we have Jesus, our living hope, we are being restored, all things are being restored, and we are being transformed more and more into his likeness. But now let's bring it to a really quick personal level. Our hope is never about optimism. Although optimism isn't a bad thing, I'm not saying that. But the core of who we are and our hope is living active in the Son of God. It is not based on looking at a situation or a circumstance and seeing the best in that circumstance. It is about our hope is that in the midst of that circumstance, come whatever what may, what we heard in those old covenants that remain true today is that the goodness and the faithfulness of God will come through for us no matter what. No matter, that is our hope. The goodness and faithfulness in Jesus because he is our king and conquered death, conquered sin. Our hope is now in him. And this morning, look, I wanted to give you a picture of the big story of God around hope, that this Advent season we would go through these next four weeks with a great sense that the story is bigger than just your individual journey of what's going on with Jesus. That is so important. So important. And Jerry next week is actually going to come and speak to us about waiting. He's going to talk about waiting in the sense of that season of wait and what that looks like when we don't see that restoration or transformation happening immediately. What is that for? What is is the wrestle that's going on? And I'm really looking forward to that, Jerry. It's going to be fantastic. Have no doubt. He's up the back smiling and nodding. (laughs) But for us this morning, I wanted to remind you of that. And as we move into a time of ministry, um, we've got some words of knowledge, but I also wanted to pray for people this morning that have a, um, 
I felt like the Lord said, in the midst of your journey, you, you've been focused on um, some of the circumstances immediately around you and your hope has been more in those circumstances changing than it has been in the sense of the goodness and faithfulness of God coming through to you in your life. Now, I have no doubt that God wants to restore those things, don't get me wrong, but it's a sense that when we've been looking at those things, we've been just looking at the broken pieces and going, how am I going to put, how are they going to be put back together when God is saying, don't, don't look at that, look at me. Look at, look at your living hope. Focus on me throughout this Christmas season. He wants to shift your focus back to him. The, the risen king, the king of kings, as Simone read this morning during worship, that is in heaven at the right hand of God being worshipped by the angels. Focus on him. Let your, every part of who you are be focused on him this morning and that he wanted to come and minister you to you in that place to help you through those circumstances and that ties into the first word of knowledge